we're lost. And Luke 15 is a parable. It's a group of parables, actually, that is good news. It's gospel truth for those who are lost. It's a radical message that Jesus brought forth at this point in time in his life. It's important for us to realize the context of Jesus telling these lost parables. He's specifically telling these parables to people that were lost in their own righteousness, that were lost in their morality, that were lost in their legalistic fastidiousness. Jesus at the time was proclaiming a message that was considered irreligious. In fact, one scholar says it like this, Jesus' message, which is the gospel, is a completely different spirituality. The gospel of Jesus is not really religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along the spectrum between those two poles. Instead, it is something else all together. This morning, we're going to look more deeply at the younger brother in this parable. Last week, I said we looked at the father. So when you hear the reading of the text this morning, of course, there will be reference to the father and to the elder brother. But we're going to seek to hone in on the younger brother, who is quite a scandalous character in our story this morning. Speaking of that scandal, and lastly, before I actually read the text, I want to read uh, this comment about Jesus and his ministry. The absolutely unpardonable thing about Jesus was not his concern for the sick, the cripples, the lepers, and the possessed. Not even his partisanship for the poor, humble people. The real trouble with Jesus was that he got involved with moral failures, with obviously irreligious and immoral people, people morally and politically suspect. So many dubious, obscure, abandoned, hopeless types on the fringe of every society. This was the real scandal. Did he really have to go so far? This attitude and practice is notably different from the general behavior of religious people. Stand with me as we hear the reading of God's Word this morning from Luke 15. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, and then moving to the narrative in verse 11. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and even eats with them. And in response, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer to be worthy, worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Verse 32 says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. What I want us to think about right out of the gates as we begin this morning is that God brings life out of death. The gospel is a proclamation of resurrection. The gospel is good news that God brings life from death. One author named Dan DeHaan simply said, Christ did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. Christ did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. Robert Capon, in a similar way, said, Jesus came to raise the dead, not to improve the improvable, not to perfect the perfectible, not to teach the teachable, but to raise the dead. He never met a corpse that didn't sit upright then and there. He never meets us without bringing us out of nothing into the joy of his resurrection. It is good news that this passage and that the gospel is about bringing life out of death because we are dead. The Bible says this repeatedly. It says it right in the beginning in Genesis If you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Of course, they did not die, Adam and Eve, physically in that moment, but they died spiritually in that moment. Paul in Romans says, the wages of sin is death. Paul also says in Ephesians that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Do you see yourself as spiritually dead? 
I think it's easy for us to see other people as spiritually dead. It might be easy for us to see our culture as spiritually dead. Surely, we might say, there is spiritual death on the West Coast, right? Or fill in the blank in your part of the country or world. But the truth is, there's spiritual death within all of us. I went to the University of Mississippi, also referred to as Ole Miss, and it's important for you to know that as this story unfolds. Briefly, I was involved with a campus ministry there named RUF, and my campus minister, whose name was Jeffrey Lancaster, used to talk about uh, how people would come see him, you know, somewhat of in a pastoral, confessional type way, and, and he used to lovingly, and, and I can honestly say this was uh, a lovingly jab at some of the um, Ole Miss girls, uh, who may or may not have been in a sorority, um, that would come into his office and describe um, essentially sin and brokenness in their life. And the way that they would do that would be filled with some level of drama that I won't at all hesitate to not be condescending, and I'll let you think about it in your own mind what they, and it might have sounded like. And then he said they would often conclude kind of the, you know, uh, confessional and the tirade with this statement, and that is just so not me. And he lovingly would just say, actually, I appreciate you telling me all that. It takes a lot of boldness and courage for you to say all these things, and I just need you to know that that is so you. But that's true about all of us. The younger son in this parable who represents spiritual death is us. Every last one of us. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor and writer in the early part of the 20th century in America... I think very poignantly says this, Sometimes Christians seem to be fuzzy and uncertain about the nature of God and His purposes in creation and redemption. In such instances, the preachers are often to blame. There are still preachers and teachers, some of you will appreciate this more than others, who say that Christ died so that we would not drink and not smoke and not go to the theater. No wonder people are confused. No wonder they fall into the habit of backsliding when such things are held up as the reason for salvation. Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. And he has done it all through grace. The good news of the gospel is that we find life in the midst of death just like the younger brother, the younger son, did in this parable before us. I want us to follow this overarching theme as a thread through the narrative and this story. So knowing that God brings life out of death, I want us to follow the younger brother on his journey from rebellion to restoration to rejoicing. Because God brings life out of death, let us look at the younger brother's, the younger son's journey from rebellion to restoration to rejoicing in our passage here this morning. First, let's look at his rebellion. And as we think about rebellion, because we are dead in our sins and transgressions, 
We are, even as A.W. Tozer said, rebels. It's a sad story and an odd story of a rebel just this past week and even weekend in Seattle on Friday evening around 7.30 at Seattle's Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, a ground crew, cruiseman named Richard Russell, if you heard this story or not, decides that he wants to fly a plane. And so he works on the ground crew, somehow gets himself into a smaller prop plane, and takes off. Literally gets the thing airborne. He's not a pilot, didn't really know how to fly, actually had told the air traffic controller in conversation while he was in the air that he had played a lot of video games. And then he kind of figured he could figure out what he was doing. Here he is on this rebel journey flying solo in a plane that he has no idea how to fly. And of course, how is this going to end? It's very interesting because the whole thing's recorded. That is, the conversations he's having with an air traffic controller. And in the beginning of the conversation, this whole thing lasted somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes. That is, this man's flight that, of course, ends in peril. At the beginning, Mr. Russell says, it's a blast, man. I've played video, video games before, you know, so I kind of know what I'm doing a little bit. He told the air traffic controller that he had hoped for a moment of serenity while he was airborne, but it just went by too fast. And then towards the end, he concludes, I have a lot of people that care about me, and it's going to disappoint them to hear that I have done this. I would like to apologize to each and every one of them. Just a broken guy, got a few screws loose, I guess. Never really knew it until now. Sounds like an understatement, to say the least. But in many ways, biblically speaking, the younger brother, the younger son in this parable was that man flying that plane on a mission of rebellion and alienation from his father. And you and I are in that same plane. We looked in a little more detail last week, so I won't reiterate the entire thing, but this rebellion from the younger son is seen profoundly and simply in his request to ask for his inheritance early. And I expounded upon some more of the cultural understandings of that last week, but it was simply a request for his father to die. The son wanted his father to die, and he wanted his share of his property, which the Greek word in this text for property is bios, which actually means life. And so essentially in his rebellion, what the younger son is saying to his father is, I want you to die, and I want to live. I want to live without you. And fundamentally, if we believe what the Scriptures say, that's what we say in our sin and our rebellion. We tell God, our Father, that we want Him to die. And we want to cultivate life on our own. You see, sin is complicated. Dorothy Sayers, the great English playwright, said that sin is the radical interior dislocation 
of the heart. Sin is a radical interior dislocation of the heart. Paul often throughout his epistles, 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament are written by St. Paul, speaks about what sin is against. And he repetitively says that sin is, rebellion is, anti-law, anti-righteousness, anti-God, anti-spirit, anti-life. Sin is cancerous. Sin is parasitical in nature, and sin is viral in its spread. Technically, sin has attached to that which is good, God's creation, your own heart, your own life, and it is at this point mutating that which is good in a parasitical nature and eating away at that which is good, and it's destroying us. And we see this through the younger son's rebellion. One man named Cornelius Plantiga, who's written some of the best and poignant things on the concept of sin that I've personally ever read, says sin is faithlessness, godlessness. Sin is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. Both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a missing of the mark, a spoiling of goods, a staining of garments, a hitch in one's gait, a wandering from the path, a fragmenting of the whole. Sin is what disturbs shalom. Sinful human life is a caricature of proper human life. Rebellion, sin, distorts and is pervasive. It is a vandalism of the way things are supposed to be. Yet, it's got this strange attractiveness to it. I don't know what you grew up hearing about sin. And by the way, I don't have time to get into this now just for time's sake. But people don't talk a lot about sin anymore. It's a little bit of an occupational hazard that I have. If I believe the Bible, I have to talk about it. Yet knowing it's not really what the consumer wants. But I grew up hearing about sin in various ways. Most of them well-meaning while at the same time being somewhat skewed. And one of the skewed ways I grew up hearing about sin was that it was not attractive or fun. And my own life just seemed to testify to the contrary, and so there was always this tension. And as I watched other people, their lives seemed to testify to the contrary as well. And the truth is, for a temporal amount of time, and sometimes that temporal amount of time is pretty elongated, to be honest. Sin is very attractive. It is very luring. And the younger son in this story is lured through his rebellion by the attractiveness of sin. But the problem is, sin also has an effect to it. Sin is dangerous. Sin progresses. And that which we think might be small oftentimes is not small even to begin with. And definitely that which starts small when we think about sin and brokenness does not end 
small. But it seems so often that we, like him, maybe make these small bargains and we think, but a little white lie, dabbling a little bit here and there. I mean, you know, like if I could take a pill to not do this, I mean, I would take the pill, but there is no pill, and I'm just going to try the best to hang on, and when Christ comes again, maybe he will remove this thorn from my side, but until then, it is what it is. And we make these bargains, and we make these rationalizations, and we make these justifications, not knowing, as the Proverbs tell us, we are like oxes led to slaughter, little knowing that it'll cost us our life. I had an interesting illustration of this a few years ago. I was driving down to the beach for work, and of course, my work trip entailed a golf tea time. And this tea time was on the day that I was leaving here to get down to the Florida Gulf Coast. And that's not a short trip. And so I needed to make haste to get there. And so, you know, for a while you're on interstate going pretty smoothly. And then you get into these back roads and it goes a little less smoothly. But, you know, you're going to cut some corners, take some risk, push it a little bit. And at one point I get into this small town and I would imagine you can relate whether you've done what I'm getting ready to say or not, but I can imagine you can relate with this scenario. I pull up to a stop sign, and it's like 11 people deep just at a stop sign at this little four corners in nowhere, Alabama. However, conveniently, there's a gas station on the right that's got like wide open space that's just begging for me, or I assume anybody, to cut the corner. And so sure enough, I'm hauling down this two-lane road. I see this long... Uh, you know, line of cars at this stop sign, and I just pull a quick right, you know, into one of these kind of country gas stations that has like Hunt Brothers Pizza or whatever. And I'm pulling through there, and I do notice kind of out of the corner of my eye that there is a person walking through the parking lot kind of at the point when I'm trying to blitz this corner. And I don't think much about it. I definitely didn't hit him. And then I cut through, you know, cut the corner, and I think I'm on my way until I see flashing lights. I get pulled over almost immediately, and I think at this point, and I've run through these scenarios before in my mind, you know, like, oh, I was just pulling in to check the gas prices, Um, (laughs) or whatever, right? Um, But this time, there was no such plausible excuse, because I was flying. Uh, as I was cutting this corner, and he pulled me over and then starts the obligatory, and I guess I don't blame him, like, let's shame the driver, right? And so at this point, policemen, they have like, you know, upper level training in shame. And so at this point, he starts to shame me. What the heck was I thinking? Da, 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 da. And at this point, I'm thinking, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to try to repent. I'm going to get to, you know, shark's tooth. And um, anyway, and so I'm just like, just write the ticket whatever, and he says, I need you to step out of your car. I said, all right. And he said, I need you to come back to the car and wait. And then he like leaves me at the back of my car. And then he walks back and I see the man who I almost hit in that gas station parking lot pointing at me. And then the policeman comes back to me and he says, I need you to stand right here. Do not move. I need to find out if he's going to press charges on you. 
for nearly hitting him. And I said, okay. And he goes back and he enters into this dialogue with this man. And I won't keep you hanging. He did not press charges. But the policeman went on to tell me, just so you know, if he had have chosen to press charges, you would be in the back of my car right now and I would be taking you to the county jail right now. Just trying to cut through, make a tea time. Is that not how things happen in our life, spiritually speaking? Just a little harmless, rebellious request. Can I just do this and then do this and then this? And then one thing leads to another. And next thing we know, the effect of sin has progressed to such a way that it takes our life. And that's what's happened here with the younger son. So he goes and he lives his life, squanders his wealth. His brother, elder brother, whether he was accurate or not, says that he squandered it with prostitutes and wild living. This guy had probably, I don't know how long, but some amazing days of partying. But they all came to a screeching halt, and he finds himself longing for home. And this is where I want to move to this part of his journey that we would reflect upon and call restoration. So he moves from rebellion to restoration, but what leads him to restoration is this idea of longing. And it's a longing for home. I'm reminded of John Muir when he says, the mountains are calling and I must go. Well, to the younger son in this parable, home was calling and he must go. I've always been compelled by a somewhat obscure, I would gather, within this crowd at large, uh, an obscure Icelandic melodic band named Sigaros, and years ago, they produced a documentary of live shows, etc., called Haima, and one of the Icelandic singers is being interviewed on this video, and they had been touring all over the world, gaining popularity, yet they were going to go home and do this special show in Iceland through this album and video called Haima, which actually means home. And the singer says, I sometimes get this strange and uncontrollable feeling to want to go home. And then beautiful music starts. You should Google it. But that's where this son is. He's got this strange and uncontrollable feeling to want to go home. Because he's miserable. And it's important for us to understand this aspect of the restoration because if we don't understand what's driving him, I believe, and it's not just me personally, but through scholarship and study, it also helps us understand what repentance is, not only in this story, but it can, I think, unlock a really beautiful key and door for repentance in our life, which is super important because repentance is not something we do once and then move on. Martin Luther had it right that repentance is all of life. 
And so the question is begged at this point, was the younger son in a place of repentance when he was longing for home? And I would offer to you the answer, no. He was physically miserable. He was broke. He was hungry. And he wanted out. And not to say that God doesn't use these felt needs, by the way, in our own lives. And as a result of being broke, hungry, miserable, and longing for home, he starts to concoct a plan of restoration. This would, we'll call this restoration on his terms. His self-help kind of Dr. Phil Oprah plan of restoration is, I'm miserable, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to get my father to hire me as one of his servants, and essentially, I'm going to earn my keep and at least work towards, if not flat out, pay him back for like his whole inheritance. And so he does this. So he's on his way home, and we all can relate with this to some degree, right? We've all wronged somebody, and I I think especially wronging our parents as a kid, and if kids are in here, uh, I would encourage you to listen to this. I mean, it's not a good feeling to have to fess up. And oftentimes when we have to fess up from that which we've done wrong, we start to rehearse kind of the speech, which is usually not completely accurate. It's not going to be completely forthcoming. It's going to have elements of the truth, kind of tip of the iceberg, and then we're just going to kind of see how that goes. And so that's what he's doing. He's like walking back, and he's like, okay, Father, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you and the whole family. I've done this. I really screwed up. I did this, but here's the plan. Hire me as one of your servants. It's going to be all good. Just I'm fine. Even if I'm a servant, I'm going to be living a better life than what I'm living right now. And so he's doing this and kind of thinking through, probably talking to himself, something he catches out of the corner of his eye that's got to completely shock him. It's what we looked at last week in detail. His father, a respectable, grown, noble man of the Orient, has tucked his robe in his undergarments and is running towards his younger son in order to embrace him and kiss him. And the younger son at that point has to pause in his speech in his own mind and start to become undone as he sees the father's loving pursuit. And if you notice in the text, and you can look at this later, I won't reread it verbatim, I'll just tell you what it says. The son starts to go into the speech that he rehearsed. Father, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, I've done this, I've done that. And then the father, in the midst of that, interrupts him with grace and interrupts him with embrace. And at that point, what does the younger son do? He stops talking. And do you know what part of his speech he left out? Make me one of your hired servants. Because I would argue, earlier he felt remorse, some level of confession, but did not really start to repent because he thought he could still do it. And what I want us to see is this in restoration. 
Repentance happens in the Father's embrace. Repentance does not warrant the Father's embrace. We do not repent so that God will embrace us. I would actually argue, at least normatively, if not exclusively, we cannot repent until we rest in the Father's embrace. And at this point, you see his journey has moved from rebellion to restoration. As his repentance is experienced in the embrace of the Father. And then lastly, this story ends with another word that begins with R. Ironically. With rejoicing, right? The Father throws this unbelievable party. So there's this death narrative that happens throughout this story. The Father dies upon the Son's request. And then the Son dies in His sinful rebellion. And then the narrative actually ends with one more death. Who dies in the end? The fattened calf. It's an amazing death march. The Father's death, the Son's death. And then the fattened calf's death. Earlier in Luke 15, in the parable of the lost sheep, verses 6 and 7 say, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, because Christ came to seek and save the lost. He came for the unrighteous, not the righteous. He came for the sick, not the healthy. And guess what? That's you and that's me. Not one time, but continually. You, if you're a Christian, you were and you still are the younger son. Redemption is unfolding, but may we be accurate about this, that we are sick, we are dead, we are unrighteous, we are lost, and we need to be found, we need to be well, we need the righteousness of Christ to us in order to rejoice. You see some interesting details through the rejoicing. Did you notice in the story that the younger son, who is deplete of all resources, including proper clothing, needs a robe. Whose robe is he wearing upon his return? The father's. You know what the father's robe signifies to everybody else in that community and at that party? Don't talk to him in the way you want to talk to him. Don't touch him. Don't shame him. You treat him with respect and honor in the same way you treat me. That's my robe. And then he also gives him shoes. You see, servants didn't wear shoes. And the father wanted to make it abundantly clear that this son of his was not a servant, but was his son. 
And that is worth rejoicing over. Two quotes to end. Bono, the Irish lead singer of U2, says this in a book called In Conversation. At the center of all religions is this idea called karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case, he says, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And then, to close, Robert Capon, former Episcopal priest, says, Grace aims at the celebration of life. Let us eat and be merry. For this son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Indeed, grace is the celebration of life out of death. Relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bash shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its causations to every window, pounding at every door in hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. We'll talk about him next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you.